Well, this is awkward. The Upstream team had all good intentions of bringing you Greg Jackson live. However, technical difficulties were an uninvited guest to the party. We have salvaged the audience Q&A, which we think will be really valuable for listeners. In this section, Greg explores how integrity, the right culture and hard work gets you through the hardest times, secrets to building the perfect team, maintaining a positive, productive and happy company culture, as well as his work-life blend, and then we talk about um, renewable energy. So uh, let's now jump in with Greg talking about how to pitch successfully. I reckon I receive five emails a day now from companies saying, how can we help you? Uh, and most of them, by the way, start by saying, you've been really good at customer service. We do customer service. We can help you. I'm like, honestly. So I think the, <laughs> the, the way to pitch is to say, here's something you're not doing, and here's how we can help you do it. And I think that's the bit, by the way, I, I, I hardly get any pictures like that. So can I have your contact after the... <laughs> Even better than that, if you join up with our company, you'll get an email from me. It's my real email address. And if you reply to my Ashraf, I asked that question about the uh, consulting company, you'll get a reply from me within 24 hours. I have the cheapest energies that, that you cannot beat, so I will not... You see, you've just lost the pitch! <laughs> <laughs> I bet you don't have your CEO's email. Well, you might, you give me your job, actually. Uh, Okay. Gentlemen behind you. Thank you. Uh, you, you just, just next to awesome. um, yeah, um, I'm fascinated. I, I could ask a lot of things, but um, I mean, I, I work with generally with uh, pre seed and seed and even micro and things. Yeah. I do a tiny bit, small things against time. And um, what I found is the students are often thinking, you know, we've got to protect ideas for follow up for Florence was rightly asking. The speed of getting things in, I mean, the strategy seems to be missing amongst the I'll write it and I'll everything. Yeah. Um, but I had like I had PhD students at hackathons, yeah. and they're not following through with the ideas, even though they're great. And they seem to think, oh, I'll put that on the shelf. I have one friend who's a part of the business, he was at CERN, and then he, after 10 years of then he, he used to ask me, he had some idea. And this idea has been done by one of the investment banks. Now. And even when it, even when, even if we got it out early, it would have been great because we could have put it into um, like, Compete with day traders. It's a sort of algorithm that's made very complicated. I don't understand it, but the point is, is you could have competed with amateur day traders if you can't compete with big bets. Now, uh, I like how you call them dinosaurs. This finance, tech, all of them. They're all there's dinosaurs in every uh, industry. And really, if I'm rambling, but to keep to keep some sort of strategy, to keep a flat fit. You've seen it with airlines. British Airways could easily copy uh, mm. any of the budget airlines. They try and yeah. they fail because it. it that's great. There were actually three things I picked there. See if I can remember the ones I speak. So the first one is uh, look, a friend of mine uh, worked for he was a he was a business journalist at Sunday Times, and then he went to work for a professional research company, and then he kind of spot the opportunity to use everything he'd learned to set up his own research company. Um, and uh, every time he went for a curry, every six months. He'd say, yeah, I'm nearly there. Let's do a bit more research, a few more contacts. And eventually, I, I, you know, I said, look, come and see me in my office, and we'll just have a chat about it. I said, look, you're either going to do it or you're not. You're never going to be ready. You're never going to have 100%. Right? It's always going to be a risk. And that risk, by the way, may be financial. It may be that you'll be embarrassed if you start it and it fails. Um, but you know what? Every time you give yourself, you're saying, I need one more stage, it's just an excuse. 
Uh, and I felt, and I said, look, by the way, neither should you definitely do it. It's just you should decide. You're either going to do it or you're going to stop dreaming um, and, and be happy with what you've got. Uh, and now in his case, he actually did it. And a few months later, we were out for a curry. And I was really, really nervous because I thought if he's done it and it's not working out, it's kind of my fault. As it was, it worked out brilliantly. And uh, he is over the moon with his new world. And I think helping people decide, you're either going to do it or you're not. But don't keep giving yourself excuses for not doing it. Because you want to get happy with your existing world or you want to try the new one. That's number one. Number two, you said British Airways can reform like this. And, and look, uh, actually, uh, someone asked a question earlier. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was. But um, uh, I think a uh, comparison for our sector, actually, is airlines, where, you know, the, it's actually one of my favorite pages on Wikipedia. I haven't read them all. But the, um, uh, it's the European airlines ranked by revenue, profit, and passenger numbers. And at the very top is Lufthansa. And next to Lufthansa's name are about, I think, five or six flags. And that's all the airlines they had to consolidate as airlines struggle to reform. And then you've got, I think, KLM, uh, I think, is, or, or British Airways is next, and similarly, four or five flags next to it. And then it's Ryanair or EasyJet. Um, and so what you've got is the best of the challenges and the incumbents that were able to reform now make up the market. And I think you're going to say this see the same in many, many other markets. And the reason British Airways find it hard is like all their people have been trained in big company ways of thinking. Now, if you ask them for a new software system, they, the first thing they do is get SAP to pitch against Oracle. Whereas if you ask you know, a startup, it will start building. And, and that kind of different way of thinking, I think, is in so many sectors now. But the incumbents start with a great brand, smart people, and loads of resources. So the battle is, can we get fast? So can we get big faster than they can reform? And the third one was just about patents and stuff. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm sure sometimes getting a patent um, is the most important thing. But very, very often, I think people worry about protection before they've worked out whether there's a market and whether they can sell. Um, and one of Britain's great entrepreneurs, a guy called Richard Harpin, who founded HomeSurf 20 years ago, is now listed at, I think, it's a sort of two or three billion pound listed business. Um, and um, he sort of says, look, execution is everything. When you go to a meeting with him, he doesn't protect his ideas, he tells everyone his ideas. He says, look, execution's everything. They probably don't agree with my ideas, but ideas are 10 a penny anyway. If they do agree with them, they won't be able to copy them, even if they wanted to. And um, by sharing the ideas, I'm actually more likely to find a deal that makes us both successful. And I think it's really interesting. Um, lady. Um, you talked about customer service. Um, I work for a business called Florence, uh, which is a marketplace for nurses and carers to find shift work. So we have a big customer service team, and I know it's a, a customer success we call it actually. So it's a combination of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation typically to make that successful. So the metrics and stuff and the targets and, and bonuses and so on is one thing. How do you think about the intrinsic motivation of those teams, of those people who are in front of the customers, um, so that they're going above and beyond? Because in my experience, that's the difference. Yeah, it's really interesting. First of all, we don't have a customer service function. Uh, we have uh, operations. And our operations are, they look after customers, but they do lots of other stuff too. Uh, we have teams of about 10 people in operations. And each team is pretty autonomous. Um, and those 10 people look after 60 or 70,000 customers. Uh, and they do everything for them. So they certainly handle telephony and digital support, inbound and outbound. 
but they'll also do a lot of the tasks that are often seen as back office in sectors like ours. Uh, and they'll make sure that customers' bills are up to date and all that kind of stuff. The idea being that they're really running a small business of their own. Um, and uh, the motivation is then very different. Because only 10 of you, um, you don't need to have a, a sort of a whole pile of metrics about how each one's performing and you know, relentlessly performance manager. If the team's doing well, they're all happy. If the team's not doing well, they're not. And their job is to come together and sort it. It's not perfect. Um, but it's a, a way of trying to avoid getting to ever more metrics and ever more KPIs. Interesting, there are no bonuses. Um, so from time to time, we might run an initiative and we'll say, right, because all teams for the next two weeks, everyone who does this will do 100 quid. But it's much more about just a, a kind of a, um, it's almost gamifying a thing. There are no bonuses and there are very few KPIs. Now, I often think of it as a grand war in the air war. So what you've got in the grand war is those people are running the show. But because we've got modern platform, platform we've built ourselves with purpose, we've got incredible data, um, which means we know on this art failing. We measure two things. One is productivity, and the other is customer happiness. So uh, for every team, every week, we know what the customer happiness and what the productivity is. Um, and if you start to see those falling, then you use the data to diagnose it. But with 10 people, the team leader really, really wants to make it work. And then the other bit is, um, a lot of this came from when I lived in a shared house. And um, it was always, who's going to do the washing up? Right? And you're like, I've done it too many, it's your turn. And we ended up just, no one did the washing up. And I think often what companies have got is that's the culture you'll start getting. So then you're building KPIs and you're ticking off who's done the washing up. Right, and, and it, so the idea really is saying we make a team small enough, everyone knows where they stand, and everything's visible. And then social pressures do the job. Uh, but the last bit is, um, the way the company grows then is, uh, you know, every time we've got another 60 or 70,000 customers, we need a new team. So uh, the teams that got the best metrics take on more and more customers, they take on more team members, and then they split, and it creates leadership opportunities and career development for people. So that then creates a motivation for everyone to make sure their team, you know, if, they, if they want to progress, they make their team successful. Um, this is fantastic. When you started Octopus, did you imagine that one day you'd be here? And if so, how did you lay down the infrastructure, and particularly the management team, to actually lead the way? So, first of all, look, I, I said earlier that I was too cowardly to go and raise money the way I should have done. And in the same way, I was too cowardly to write the business plan we should have done. So our business plan said we'd get to 600,000 customers after five years. And we were sitting there going like, you know, we thought that was challenging. Like that's zero to 600 million revenue. It's about a thousand pounds a customer per year. Revenue in five years. And you sit there thinking of a startup, you go, that's just bonkers, right? Um, so we kind of let that be a mental barrier. Uh, and yet, when you looked at the core unit economics, you're like, I think this could be really big. Um, but we didn't dare write that down. And it was only, it was on holiday last summer in the glamorous Peak, Peak District campsite on a deck chair uh, next to uh, a caravan. That, um, I was just sitting there thinking about this and I suddenly realized like, I'm letting fear of failure, fear of publicly declaring we're we gonna achieve something and then not hitting it, hold back our entire company's ambition. And I thought, you know, like when people found, found great companies, I don't think, I mean, like, not that I compare ourselves to them, but just what can we learn from them? And I think when you look at, did Bezos sit there and go like, one day we could be a tenth the size of Walmart 
Or was he just thinking, look, there's a massive, massive problem to solve here, and the sky's the limit. So I think it, it took me three years, two and a half years to admit that, and then realize we can just stick our neck out. Do you need a drink? <laughs> Got loads, thank you. Far too slow. Has the company grown uh, quickly? How do you maintain that um, mission sort of statement of the future of being strong and, yeah. and feeling your 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 charisma I would say you know like what you're spreading and, and how can, do you make this like is the same for every employee I would say yeah um, so it's very important for you sorry. no no you're absolutely right so I think we've got three components yeah. we've got technology culture and operating model so you talk about operating model that's things like having these autonomous teams and genuinely meaning it every time we've got a problem the answer is how as a manager, your first reaction is to centralize. I need to control this. But that, the answer always is to decentralize. And having that religion on the operating model about decentralization is number one. Number two is having a technology platform that allows it. So our team can sit there and can see every aspect of a customer's uh, account. They can see everything we do with that customer instantly from anywhere. And the metrics, you know, our data science team, our technology team, uh, customer operations, marketing, the innovation teams we've got, everyone has got a single complete data set which supports that model because you don't end up having to have all these coordinating functions. Um, and then the third thing is culture. And then, you know, without being naff, I think it was Peter Drucker that said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So uh, what the relentless focus for me is to maintain culture. And uh, the kind of things we do, so we currently operate on four sites in the UK. We're also in Sydney, Australia, and Munich in Germany. And um, every Friday at 5.15, uh, we get the whole company together and we use video link up and we talk about the week that's just gone. And it's not compulsory. In fact, on culture, decentralized, bottom up. Um, it's my job to make sure that's interesting enough. People choose to stay and listen every Friday evening. Now, because of the time zones and everything else, we video it and we make sure that everyone in the company has got access. And things like that that are about saying that we come together and we share where we're going, we celebrate success, um, but most importantly, we remember we're all pretty fucking cool and that what we're doing matters. So I think in loads of companies, you start to get operations hate technology because the IT function always lets them down. By the way, technology hate operations because operations don't know what they want. They're always changing their mind. Um, and then, um, yeah, marketing hate operations because they can't deliver an initiative. And operations hate marketing because they create spiky demand. But when you bring everyone together and you remember that we're here for the same thing, and you do it every week, and you look and, and you're hearing from these people how they're driving the thing we all care about, it creates a much better sense of cohesion. And then the other thing is, I talked to about you know when people join the company, that bit where you know I sit with them and talk about, you know. Keep this the company you join. Don't let it become the one that you've left or the one that your friends work for. And I think that's really important. Uh, you, um, you, you, you're clearly hiring a lot of people now. You started with very few people and very little brand present. Yeah. How did you hire those first people? And how did you balance who was available and willing to work with you versus who were the right best people? Yeah, so I, I, I sometimes wonder that. Oh, there's one of ours. Um, I sometimes wonder that. Uh, so it's on a billboard behind you. Um, but, yeah, 
Uh, what was he there? Uh, yeah, no, I sometimes wonder that myself. Um, I think, uh, so I have to go back and, and kind of remodel it, I think. But the, um, the first thing is that I'm pretty old now. And this is about the sort of third business of scale I've started. I mean, they haven't been as big as this, but that's had a reasonable number of people working for it and done the interesting stuff, mainly with technology. And I think, you know, if you treat people well, you're in it together forever. Um, the, the relationships endure beyond the businesses. And, and some of them might have left previous businesses and then we've rehired them. Others, I'm not rehired them, you know, kind of give them the call and we start this. Others, we might have been there till the end and others might have stayed long beyond, beyond the point when I'd left or exited. So number one was like, you know, really long-term relationships. And, and by the way, I don't know if it's nepotistic or not, but you know, the, the two people who, you know, I sort of co-founded it with, I was at university with, and given my age, um, you know, there's a reasonable chance that not all of us would be alive by now. So um, that length of relationship, we're not friends, we've never been friends. We just, I totally respect their ability and their integrity. So the people where you had respect for uh, ability, integrity, cultural matters. And then the other, really, you know what? Um, I have never found it a problem to find the right people, right? Never. And I think that's partly because if, if you know, most people are pretty awesome, right? Um, actually, and most companies eliminate the awesomeness from their people. So, you know, if you think um, all the processes and systems that people get given when they arrive at work, that infantilize them, as opposed to like when they leave work, and then, you know, in, we're in London, you know, living in London, making ends meet, bringing up a family are harder than the things that most companies ask you to do at work. So I think part of it is um, there are great people everywhere if you can inspire them, motivate them, and let them be great. Now that said, there's some intrinsic brilliance in, in, some, in a lot of our people early and otherwise. Uh, but I think that comes, it, it, so many of the things I'm talking about tonight are about inverting the, inverting the causality or inverting the process, the thinking. So what most companies do, like I'm hiring a marketing person. So I'll define exactly what they're gonna look like. And I'm gonna put them in and they're gonna arrive on day one with a set of objectives and a set. I mean, that's a terrible way. Because what you do then is they're coming with loads of magic you're not gonna get access to because you didn't write that down in that list. Meanwhile, um, there are gonna be loads of things written in that list that they're not the best in the world at. And yet you're gonna be forcing them to do it. So a really important thing we do, um, and I've, I've learned over the years, I think, is give them a broad area and then watch what they're good at. Watch what they start doing. Watch the way they work and shape the job around the person. Don't try and shape the person for the job. And if you do that, you get more and more magic. And especially in the early days when there is so much to be done, you, you know, you're able to fit these shapes much better together than you ever would have done if you'd sat there with traditional management training and tried to vertically align objects which are not straight lines. Does that make sense? Cool. Hi, uh, I'm Aman. Uh, I see most of the discussions we've had till now are uh, fairly intrinsic to the company, like culture, uh, your people, and so on. Uh, one of the things that I would like to ask is more more from the extrinsic factor perspective is marketing. Mm -hmm. You you just quoted marketing a bit. Uh, so uh, you scaled astronomically, right, from zero to it's it's one to number. Like that. But uh, uh, at the same time, uh, it means that you reached out to as many customers. Yeah. Now, uh, 
given the fact that GDPR is there, how, how do you actually, uh, from a marketing standpoint, don't uh, deviate from the processes and still reach out to so many people? Yeah. What would be that GTM perspective uh, that you looked at? It's interesting. I, I, GDPR is, is, first of all, I think it was the best marketing effort ever by lawyer, law firms, right? Um, they managed to scare every large enterprise, many small ones, into spending vast amounts of money on what turned out to be relatively minor kind of um, change. Now, don't get me wrong, the fines for GDPR can be colossal. We've seen the first signs of that. But on the whole, what's GDPR doing? It's probably stuff that's genuinely about respecting something that's pretty important now, which is our our personal data. Um, So a good company respects that anyway. So I think a lot of it is, um, if what you plan, I mean, we were lucky enough that when we started the business, GDPR was already well known. It, was already, it wasn't in place, but it was going to happen. Yeah. So everything from the way our systems were built and our marketing efforts, we always knew that anyway. Yeah. But I remember the first data protection that was brought in, uh, and I had a business then that did data, and loads of our clients were worrying about it. Um, and actually, you know, if they were doing the right thing, it might have formalized a few bits, but it didn't change very much. And I think that about GDPR too. Does that, does that answer your question? You're not a GDPR lawyer, right? By the way. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'm not. That. No, that's good. Because technology. Because you'd be in the Caribbean now, having a holiday, <laughs> because they've done the sales and they're now living off the proceeds. So, yeah, so, so was I mean, I wanted to understand a bit on the GDPR perspective. So was it like uh, creating things which would lead to virality because you reached from zero to four billion? Yeah. So, so from a GDPR perspective, what would be those key things one should look at? as a startup? Look, uh, I think that um, in marketing, truths reveal themselves. So you, you can think all things you want. To, I, I, grew, I, I, was, I did marketing with Procter & Gamble. Um, and apart from being miserable, it was a very good training school for that. But when we started this business, we took a lot of what we learned in things like P&G marketing and tried it in our business. And it was a brutal failure, right? And that's because at P&G, what you learn how to do is make TV ads that batter people around the head until they re- just give up. And so we made some, you know, and obviously obviously was more online now, so we made stuff using all the PNG magic. And these days, customers can tell you what they think of it. And they didn't think very much. And instead, what we had to do was a bit like with a lot of the other things, like listen to the truth in the market and actually respond to that. And it probably took us a couple of years of relentless trial, error, and listening to get you know, to the point that we kind of began to understand what mattered in our brand, what would resonate with people, what wouldn't. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. Um, Along your entrepreneurial journey, what would you say is the biggest challenge you faced? Look, this sounds really naff. It's so much less challenging for me, personally, than working for a corporate would be, right? Um, So the biggest challenge working for a corporate was getting up in the morning. you know, and it, it, I don't know whether anyone else does this, but I used to sit there you know, quite often just pretending to work. Um, whereas today, you know, every moment, all I want to do is do more of the magic, you know, so I enjoy uh, the work with it. So um, I don't, I'm, I mean, look, there have been terrible things that have happened. I mean, I had a business that essentially we had to close down and I had loads of personal guarantees and I was, a, I was not yet 30 years old on my honeymoon. I was having to work out how we paid off millions of pounds of debt without an income. So that sounds painful, right? But actually, you've still got autonomy and agency that you don't have when you're working in a corporate environment. So, uh, yeah, to be honest, 
and that the freedom is worth all the price. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have a better answer. <laughs> you need to get your marketing people to work on that. Yeah, right. that wouldn't um, be authentic, though. Yeah. Um, hi, um, so my name is Emmanuel, and um, as you were talking about your, um, or as we've learned about the scale and the growth that you've experienced, obviously that that's um, the growth in the team, the growth in um, the little type of operations you have, but also the growth in the number and the diversity of your customer base. Um, so I, I'm the director of an organization that promotes students from um, ethnic minority backgrounds progressing in STEM. So we're often having conversations about how to support young people in, um, in science and technology and help businesses attract young people and that are aspiring to science and technology. And the conversation we often have is that businesses have to reflect their customer base in terms of their staff, in terms of their, their people. And so operating in different areas of um, of the world and London being quite a diverse city. How would you how important would you say you've seen that your workforce reflecting your customer base and the impacts of that? And maybe someone if um, if there isn't that ethnic diversity, some of the challenges that also poses. Yeah, look I, by the way this is I think one of the most important topics. Um, and something that I'm now in a privileged position to do something about, right? Because when you're small, you can't do very much uh, on this stuff. Um, so the first thing is, um, look at where we're based. Our London office is in Soho, right in the middle of Soho. Our other offices that we chose to open, we've got one through acquisition, but the ones we chose to open are the centre of Leicester, which I think is the most diverse, ethnically diverse city in the UK. We're right in the city centre. And the other is in Brighton, which is famous for other forms of diversity, right? And that is really, really, really important to us. Um, and I, I often say, like, so many, it's a bit like the mission statement question earlier. Corporates are trying to retrofit their existing practices to a bunch of tick boxes. And that doesn't deliver the change that we need. Now, I can never know what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. I, I can never know what it's like to be someone from an ethnic minority or to be a woman. Um, I can never know, you know, kind of what it is like when the role models don't look and sound like me. Uh, what I can try and do is foster an environment in which we increasingly are able to bring role models in all the places we are that inspire and motivate people from every background. And that I think increasingly help us reflect the diversity of, of the nation. Now I say that, I think there's still some areas that are really difficult. So um, something you find, like I, I answer customer emails. Far too many people are not able to express themselves clearly in writing because they're not English language origin. And they live in our society, and yet we don't realize how much we marginalize them through the ways in which companies and government interact. Now I see that and I think really hard about how hard it must be if you can't even understand the quote when you're signing up for our product, our service. Never mind what it's like when you can't understand the council tax or whatever other documents. So I think this question about how we increasingly have to try hard to understand what it is like to be in other shoes and then create a society that better serves all of those people is incredibly important. You mentioned your company and um, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm sure there are several people today that are going to try and ask us to work together. Um, you haven't done that. But I would actually just love to see what you do. Because um, my team, one of the things I really love in a decentralized, bottom-up company, 
that is you know, incredibly diverse to wear. Our people ask about topics like this all the time. And we foster debate and discussion, and we haven't got enough answers. So do drop me an email, please. Thank you. Sign up first, though, by the way, you know. <laughs> I'm joking, by the way. It's a very expensive form of customer acquisition. No one should feel this excited. Um, sorry. I was going to say, uh, back to your honeymoon, and you had paid millions of pounds with no income. How did you do that? Just yeah, I should be clear. It's not millions. It's about a million. Um, and actually, most of what I did was back to the we talked about, actually. Um, uh, the biggest uh, debt we had in that business was to our landlord, where we guaranteed multiple years of rent. And um, uh, UK property law, by the way, very rigged in favor of landlords. I'll talk about that another day. Um, but the, um, I'd always treated him with great respect. Um, and in return, he did the same, actually. And we came to an arrangement that meant that you know, instead of him holding us to the letter of what we owed, we were able to see him good on his actual losses, that is, until he got new tenants, um, and work really hard over the next few years to repay everything I promised. And that was why I started my next business, which was the first one that was, you know, really quite successful in technology. And so um, I think that combination of integrity and culture and hard work gets you through the hardest times. And I'm still grateful to him, by the way, a guy called Ian Shear uh, in Watford. Um, so if you're ever passing through Watford, give him a wave. <laughs> uh, do you have any plans for regions of the world which have difficulty in terms of grid supply? Yeah, I would love to, right? I mean, I think it is the most frustrating thing is not being able to do everything you want to at once, right? Um, but, you know, a world in which a shipping container turns up in a village that doesn't currently have any reliable, possibly any source of energy, um, and unpacks a combination of solar panels, batteries, meters, and a mobile phone payment system, as an example, is something that's already happening. It's expensive. It's expensive for the, the, the people that get the energy, but at least they're getting energy. But I think to really drive that at scale and drive the costs down is an incredible opportunity over the next decade. If anybody here wants to be an energy entrepreneur that does something incredible for the world, you know, green energy for developing countries is a huge opportunity. And, uh, you know, if you do it, uh, you know, sooner or later, I hope that we can work together. Um, any other questions? No. Okay. I'm going to tie you up because do you have actually have time to read these days? Do you have time to do anything but work? Um, yeah, you know what? I, I'm very open about this, actually. Yeah. You know, like my kids come first. Yeah. And then work. That's my life. Uh, and I love it because... Yeah, I'm privileged enough to have, yeah. to, to, to have the job I've got. Um, but the kids had no choice in existing, so better, you know. <laughs> uh, um, although I'm trying to teach, I tried to get one to come along tonight, actually. He's a 13-year-old, and I was like, come on, you'll, you'll find out what I do for a living. And uh, instead, he opted to stay at home and, uh, you know, make a box into a house and, um, <laughs> and, and play with a PS4. Uh, so, and we're going to have a curry later. Okay. But yeah, no, I do. I love reading, actually. Okay, so... Um what one, two, or three books would you recommend to entrepreneurs and those working in startups? And I have to say, I'm good at they do not have to be business books or kind of, you know, the gentleman in front of us got books entitled mm. Pitch. It doesn't have to be something like that. It pitch can be anything. anything. By the way, is a very good book. Okay. Just for everyone. Yeah. If anyone didn't hear that, it's Pitch anything. So, yeah. yeah. Anything. You know what? It's very interesting. Right? Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, there is one business book that I think mm. everyone should read, actually, and yeah. not just in business. It's called Getting to Yes. <laughs> 
uh, The Art of Principal Negotiation. And you only need to read the first chapter. It's only a meter read, really. That would work. Um, but, um, and it's really about seeking win-win in negotiation as yeah. opposed to haggle. Uh, and I think it's astonishingly good. I read that on holiday. Getting to yes. It's by a couple of professors of negotiation. I knew it was such a thing, but it's really good. I read that on holiday. I had to return it to the hotel uh, bookshelf. So I did only read chapter one and right at the end. So. And how did you find it? It's excellent. I, and I, I did learn something very important, which I'm using. That's, it's genuinely brilliant because I think negotiation isn't just you versus another company. It's you yeah. with you know, the people you work with. It's you with your investors. It's you with your customers. Um, but that's about negotiation. There are better solutions for both parties. And by the way, the answer really is compromise is bad because compromise means neither of you get what you want. And that's the magic, right? I'm understanding that. So uh, I love that. That's yeah. the only business one that I love. Um, yeah. There's loads of other business ones that are kind of it's like a film. You, you read it, you ask pretty cool, and then you've forgotten you've ever seen it. Um, but there's. Um, so for me, I find uh, it's one that massively inspirational to me. It's one called, uh, I think it's called More With Less. And it's a biography of a guy called Paul McCready. More With Less, I think it's called. And it's a guy called Paul McCready. And um, I don't know if anyone's, if you were alive in about 1980-ish, um, there was a guy who built a, an aircraft that was pedal powered that crossed the channel. Um, and he was the guy that did it. And, and really, what, what that book has got is this incredible determination and passion to do something that was just on the boundaries of physical possibility. And, and, there are, and the guy himself, like, you know, there's really interesting about him, but, but really interesting, he scoured the world to get a pilot because the pilot had to be someone who could keep cycling at maximum output for, I can't remember, it was like two hours. I think. It was quite a long, it was, it was very slow. <laughs> um, so the 20 odd miles was hard yeah. work. Um, and he found this Olympic cyclist who was up for the challenge. And then he had to do extra training because being an Olympic cyclist was not good enough for this challenge. And then the night before they did it, Paul McCready said to him, look, let's say you know, you're a couple of miles from the French coast and your body is given up and you can no longer, you just can't carry on. What are you going to do? And he said, carry on. And I just thought that, you know, that, that is the definition of determination for me. So you've got the genius of the guy that works out this is possible. You've got the determination to find the right person and the determination of the person that made it happen. And now, obviously, it's a fairly pointless thing to do. But what they did was incredible. And the other one is, uh, is very geeky, actually, which is the Apollo Guidance Computer Manual. Um, the Apollo Guidance Computer Manual. Basically, it's quite geeky, but I think anything to do with the Apollo missions is incredible because... When we, when Kennedy said that we were going to send a man to the moon, obviously these days it might have been less gender specific, um, and bring them back alive, quite important. Um, they had no idea how they were going to do it. And actually, things like um, they had to invent a special kind of computer when computers didn't really exist. And then they had to invent an operating system. And then they had to write the software. And they had to do all of that successfully by a deadline. And not with no one ever having done any of it before, it's all dependent on itself. And then send it in space and hope it works when it's the wrong, you know, and, and it's gonna. Uh, and I thought the sheer ambition and um, kind of uh, belief that enable people to do that is incredible. So there you go. Okay, that's uh, three books for your Christmas list. If anybody needed any, I'd also say, by the way, in terms of Brexit, you should read a book called Ragged Trouser Philanthropist. Oddly, it's a sort of socialist novel set in early 20th century. 
and it's got this kind of really interesting thing where a bunch of people are debating free trade and uh, all that is, it's a hundred years prescient for where we are today in a world of terrible um, kind of uh, inequality. And um, yeah, I find things like that actually really make me think. Cool. Uh, okay, one last question. Well, it's not a question. I just wanted to add to the book. Yeah. Well, I found one book very inspiring uh, over the years. It's a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, which really makes you think what, how how many companies get wrong when they create a startup. And that could not that could be a startup within a big organization, but it builds on very useful principles to really start understanding how to build a business that actually there is a demand for it and if you do it successfully. Eliminate working on things which don't actually work. So, so Frank, I, I first in here was the lean startup, which every entrepreneur is supposed to read. Right? I haven't read it yet, um, <laughs> really but loads of people tell me how good it is, and I think I kind of know what's in it. And you're totally right; it sounds amazing. Thank you, Greg. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to some of our community, and your inspirational session really equipped the room with a lot of knowledge and advice. Did you miss out on this event and want to be the first to hear about our events or news that we've picked especially for our community? Well, you can follow us on Twitter where we are at Hello Upstream. Join our mailing list by going over to move-upstream.org.uk or you can connect to us on LinkedIn where we are Upstream and Imperial College London and Hammersmith and Fulham Council Partnership.